We're in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Uh, I kind of started talking about this last week by giving you a big picture of what's going on. And today I actually want to get into the text itself and exegete the passage. But this scene begins with the sounding of the seventh angel or the sounding of the seventh trumpet judgment. Okay, we talked about how the seventh trumpet judgment or the all seven trumpet judgments in actuality is the opening of the seventh seal. So if you go back to Revelation chapter 8, the seventh seal of the title deed of the earth is opened by the Lamb, Jesus Christ. There is silence in heaven for the space of a half an hour. And then the opening of that seventh seal results in the coming out of seven angels from the temple of God in heaven to sound seven trumpet judgments. We've worked our way through those judgments and now the seventh trumpet sounds. And what the seventh trumpet is, is the third woe. The fifth and the sixth trumpets are the first and second woes. Infernal uh, torment, infernal destruction. And then what we'll see as we move into chapter 16 is the seven vile judgments of God's wrath. So the seventh seal produces seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet will produce seven vials. So what is the seven seal judgment. It's the seven trumpet judgments and the seventh vial judgments. It all goes together. Okay? And the context we have here, as we see, is a worship service in heaven. As this seventh angel sounds that trumpet, things begin with a worship service in heaven. Um, this is the third such service in heaven we see in the book. The Lamb and the title deed of the earth with the church in heaven, Romans 4, I mean Revelation 4 and 5. Then we have the martyred tribulation saints in Revelation 7 worshiping God. And here we have worship and adoration both of the church here in chapter 12 and we'll see of the tribulation saints in chapter 15, the first eight verses. So the scene John gives us here is the exact same scene we see in the first eight verses of chapter 15. So keep that in mind. The chronology is not progressing. And sandwiched between these two passages is more background information concerning the tribulation and the war between Satan and the church that we'll get into. So last week, in looking at the big picture, we talked about how Israel, during this time, is moving. They regathered into the land in unbelief, 1948 until now. Most Jews that come to the land are coming there in unbelief. Israel is a secular nation. Tel Aviv is like a San Francisco on the Mediterranean Sea. But they will make a transition from secular, unbelief, to God-fearing and religious, but that's not the end. God-fearing and religious must become messianic where they accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And we saw in Hosea last week that Jesus said He would come well, God said He would come and then He would return to His place until Israel recognizes its offense. So until Israel recognizes that they rejected God's Messiah and that Yeshua is that Messiah, He will, he will stay in His place. So Christ can't come to the earth until Israel repents. And that's all in the plans of a sovereign God. Now, He can come for His church at any time because He's coming in the air to take us home. But that's the big picture um, what we see here is the focus of the church's worship. 
So it's like an overture of this worship service. And then when we get into chapter 15, it's more like a finale. The focus is on the worship of the tribulation saints. Now, we talked about in looking at this, how God, when he does something, it's always decent and in order. And that's why Paul the Apostle tells us the church to do all things decent and in order. Why? Because God reveals himself decently and in order. In times past, we look at Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. He revealed himself through the prophets. But in these last days, not prophet, prophets, and in these, but in these last days, he reveals himself to us through his son. So those that deny the sonship of God are damnable heretics that preach a damnable religion that leads to hell. If that's hate speech, so be it. The God of heaven hates. If you love, you have to hate. Just like if you have light, there has to be dark. The absence. So God hates righteously. And if to say these things is hate speech, well, a lot of the things that God says in here is righteous hate speech. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. God is a storm. He is a mighty earthquake. But what the wicked can't see is he's also the shelter from the storm and the safety from the trembling if they would but run to him. If they would but run to him. But I want to look at the specifics. So let's read this passage again. And we'll, look, we'll get into this worship service in heaven. We've had a worship service this morning already singing praises unto God for what He did through Christ in sending His Son to this earth to be born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem in fulfillment of specific prophecy. Here we have a worship service and we have a pattern to it. And I think it's a pattern that we should follow. If it's revealed to us in a certain way, then what better way to model our worship than after the pattern given us in the Scriptures? Moses was shown a pattern of how to build things, very specific, precise details when it came to the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and other things. He was shown a pattern, and he followed it. We're shown a pattern here. Let's follow it. And the seventh angel sounded. That was the extent of our exegesis last week. Now, and what happened? There were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we have voices. First set of voices. Verse 16, And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying... So we have a second set of voices. We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and which wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. That word testament in, in, in the Greek is the word for covenant. In, 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 in the Hebrew, the Ark of the Covenant. And there were lightnings and voices. So we have a third set of voices. And thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Okay? So chronologically speaking, at verse 19, you should immediately jump to chapter 15, verse 8. If you want to look at pure chronology. So in terms of the narrative moving along in time, 
Chapter 11, 19 should jump to 15, verse 8. 15 verses 1 through 7 is the exact same scene in heaven. And then the chronology picks up again in verse 8. And then we see the sounding of the seventh trumpet and the vile judgment. So just a note. So we have three mentions of voices or three sets of voices. What we have is a worship service with three stanzas. Just like a song has, some of the songs we sang this morning had several stanzas, three verses. We can look at this great hymn to God in heaven as having three verses. It's very easily discerned here. So, let's look at these uh, three stanzas. The first verse, the second half of verse 15, says that John heard great voices in heaven. This was a symphony, not a single herald declaring the triumph of Christ, but a great Symphony, declaring victory. You can kind of contrast it with the first verse of chapter 8. When the seventh seal was broken, there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. When the seventh angel sounds the trumpet, there's a great symphony of praise. Heavenly voices... What are these voices? Well, we've already seen these heavenly voices. We've already seen this same order of service in chapters 4 and 5. The cherubim, the seraphim, the archangels, the angels, etc. An innumerable host. If you go back and look at the order of service in chapters 4 and 5, it starts with the cherubim. Those beasts full of eyes. That's what Satan was. He was a cherub. Okay? the highest in the order of heaven before he rebelled. And then that's followed by the worship of the elders who represent the church. And then it's followed by an innumerable host. The same order of service is here. The first stanza, voices in heaven, then the elders, and then then voices accompanying these uh, phenomena. It's the same order of service. God's consistent. He doesn't change. Great voices in heaven saying... The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. This word here, or this verb, are become, is in Greek, I don't want to get into too many grammatical terms here, because you won't remember it, there's no point. But in Greek, there's a, a time when the author will speak about a future event using the past tense. We call this the prophetic aorist. And the context tells us he's speaking of the future, but he speaks of it as if it happened in the past because it's as good as done. It's as good as done. This is what's happening here. The kingdoms are become... I love the way the King James translates it here because it shows us it's a prophetic heiress. It doesn't say the kingdoms became. They are become at a point in time, the kingdoms of this world which we see today, at a point in time literally, not behind the scenes, God ruling in the hearts of His people. We know He does that. Not God behind the scenes governing and preserving. We know He does that. We know all things happen according to His will. But at a point in time, these kingdoms of the world, 
of whom Satan rules, become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. There's a point there. That's what the Hallelujah Chorus is, is talking about. That was a Christmas carol. Actually, it goes with Handel's Messiah celebrating the birth of Christ. But there's a point in which they become. Have the kingdoms of this world in a physical, visible sense become the kingdoms of God and Christ at this point? No. But they will, coinciding with this, these judgments, and they're spoken of in the original language as happening in the past because it's as good as done. I don't care what happens in this election next November. I don't care uh, what, happens in, what happens in Israel. I do care in a sense, but I don't care what Russia does in Syria. I don't care what uh, uh, you know, immigration changes are made in this country. There's a point in time in which the kingdoms of this world, the United States included, become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. I don't care what the Freedom From Religion Association in Wisconsin demands concerning crosses and prayers and all of that. At one point, at some point, the kingdom will become Christ to do with whatever he wants. And that is as good as done. Let's look at a couple of uh, verses to show you an example of this elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, if you'll look up Luke 19.9 and Jason Romans 8.30. God can speak of the future as if it's the past because He's above all of that. To God it is past because it's as good as done. It's only future from our perspective. Luke 19, 9. <clears throat> Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as He also is the son of Abraham. Okay. Um, this was uh, the house of Zacchaeus. This day salvation is come. Okay? It's spoken of. The tense is actually an aorist or a past tense in the original language. Here, Jesus speaks of a present event, salvation coming to Zacchaeus, in the past tense because it was as good as done in the past. The Bible says God called His saints from the foundation of the world. He elected them from the foundation of the world. That doesn't make me a Calvinist. That makes me a believer of God's Word. Read Ephesians 1. It's that simple. Romans 8.30 Moreover, whom He did predestinate, then He also called. And whom He called, then He also justified. And whom He justified, then He also glorified. When we are saved, God justifies us. He declares us to be righteous. Our position changes from condemnation to sonship because of what Jesus Christ has done. That happens at the point we repent toward God and call upon Jesus Christ. Those whom God justifies, He sanctifies. That means He sets them apart and through the work of the Holy Spirit, those that have been saved are brought into uh, uh, brought into confirmation or conformity with the image of Christ they've been declared to have. That's the victory of, over sin in the Christian life. That is spoken of in the past tense here. For many of us, we're in that process. Okay? But it's spoken of as so certain, it's, it's as if it's been done. If you've been justified, you will be sanctified. And then those who are sanctified, it says... He also 
Does it say will glorify? No. Have any of us been glorified in our glorified bodies? No. But that promise is spoken of in the past. Those who He justified, He sanctified, past tense. Those who He sanctified, He glorified, past tense. This is the prophetic aorist. A future event from our perspective or an ongoing event with sanctification from our perspective spoken of in the past tense because where God is concerned, it's already done. It's as good as done. As Keith Green said in one of his songs, the battle is already won. So we can rest in knowing that our glorification is as good as done. We don't need to worry about that. It's as good as done. These wicked, dark kingdoms that cause us so much, much discouragement, especially in our own country where we know where we came from and we see how things have changed, shouldn't distract us from our purpose because these kingdoms will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And that will be so much better than a group of 55 signers of a Declaration of Independence in the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, those things were great, but they were temporary. And our founding fathers knew they would be temporary. They warned that these things only work. The First Amendment, the Constitution only works when you have a moral people that fear God. With the absence of that, they don't work, they fall apart. And that's why today the Constitution isn't worth the paper it's written on as far as our government is concerned and as far as the people are concerned. Because we don't have a moral people that fear God anymore. Those that truly fear God and His Word are a small remnant. Okay? So that's why these things don't work. So it's exactly what our founding fathers said. Um, and they were prophets in that sense. But nonetheless, despite the experiment they gave the world, which was successful for many years and resulted in God's blessings, mainly because of our, the refuge we've provided for the Jews and the light we've as a nation provided for the gospel, is temporary. And what is coming under Christ is so much better even than that. So let's don't get too discouraged over where we are today. The prophetic aorist, at this point in the book, these things are said but they're spoken of as in the past because they're as good as done. There is a point when earthly rule, physical, outwardly observable rule, passes into the hands of God. Yes, it's there. Yes, it's in the background. Yes, we know He governs. Yes, we know Satan is but His minister, only to do what God allows. He's on a chain. But there's a point where all that becomes visible. It's not in the background anymore. It's in the foreground for all to see. Here in this verse, with these heavenly voices, the kingdom becomes outward and visible. Is the kingdom outward and visible right now? Yes or no? There are many people that would claim it is. That we're living in the millennium now. People that preach the gospel and are faithful to do it on the street. Reformed theology, covenant theology, which I believe is dead wrong in a lot of places, and I'm not ashamed to say that. And when people argue these things, they don't cite the Scriptures. They cite the Reformers. The Reformers lived in a different time and context. And uh, it's a lot uh, more complex than it's made out to be. But we live on the other side of Israel and the land, and we have no excuse. But the kingdom is not outward and visible today. What is it today in this dispensation of grace? Let's look up a few passages. Daniel, Luke 17, 21. 
Uh, Ronnie, if you'll look up Daniel chapter 4, verse 32. And Jim, if you'll read Daniel 5, I think that's a 21. I can't read my own chicken scratch. Let me make sure. Uh, Daniel chapter 5, it's either 21 or 27. Uh, Okay, yeah, 21. Verse 21. Daniel, if you'll read Luke 17, 21. Neither shall they low here or low there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Okay. Jesus says there in Luke, the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of heaven, talked about in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is the outward visible. The kingdom of God is the inward spiritual. And in Christ, in the millennium, the outward visible, the inward spiritual are one. When... You need to look at when the word kingdom of God is used in the gospel versus kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing, but one's the outward visible, one's the inward spiritual. But Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. That kingdom of God, that ruling and reigning spoken of is within us in this dispensation. In our hearts, through the Holy Spirit. But there's coming a point as described here in Revelation 11... That what is inward and spiritual for us, the church, becomes outward and visible where all are concerned. So even today, it is what Jesus has said. But then go read the Sermon on the Mount. We have a constitution in our country. You know what the constitution for the government of the millennial kingdom under the rule of Christ is? It's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through We've, we've talked about the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God. You can go back to some of those old messages. We talked about that concerning Revelation. Daniel 4.32 And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whosoever he will. Here God is going to teach Nebuchadnezzar a lesson, one of the greatest absolute monarchs in the history of the world. And that lesson he would learn is that there is a God in heaven who rules in the kingdoms of men. And he taught him that lesson. We live in a day when God rules in the kingdoms of men. He rules behind the scenes, directing it like a chessboard to bring about his purposes. No question about that. God rules in the kingdoms of men. Daniel 5.21 He was driven from the sons of men and his heart was made like a beast. His dwelling was with the wild asses and they fed him with grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. So he knew that the most high God ruled in the kingdom of men and that he appointed over it whomever he will. This was the fulfillment of what was prophesied there in Daniel chapter 4. And then Nebuchadnezzar realizes it. That there is a God who rules in the kingdoms of men. God directs and rules in the kingdoms of men. But what we see here in Revelation is not ruling in or through, but taking and ruling the kingdoms of men. So there's a difference between ruling behind the scenes and actually taking the reins and doing it himself. That's the difference we see here. 
God rules in the kingdoms of men today. Everything that happens, happens under His watch care. And He directs it as if He's moving pieces on a chessboard. But there comes a day when He sweeps the chessboard off the table and stands on the table Himself. No longer ruling in, but ruling, period. And we see that prophesied numerous times, or that shift prophesied in the Old Testament. Let's look up a couple more verses. Eric, Ezekiel 21, 26, and 27. Matthew, Daniel chapter 2, verses 35 and verse 44. Uh, Jason, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 and verses 27. And Daniel, I'll circle back to you, Zechariah 14, 19. And when you have that, go ahead and read it. Thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And it shall be no more until he comes to the right it is. And I will give it him. Ezekiel's prophesying to the people of Israel. He's basically said, take off the crown from the king. Take away the diadem. It's over. There will be no more king in Israel until he whose right it is comes. And then I will give it, the crown and the diadem, to him. So why doesn't Israel have a king? Why has it not had a king since Zedekiah was, uh, had his eyes put out by Nebuchadnezzar and carried captive to Babylon? Because God said no more. No more king. Until he whose right it is come and then I will give him the kingdom. So there's a point when he whose right it is comes and God takes the diadem and the crown and gives it to him. There's a point where ruling in the kingdoms becomes ruling the kingdoms. Okay, we know this is talking about Messiah here. Daniel 2, 35 and 44. <clears throat> then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the earth became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms it shall stand forever. This is what's being talked about when the voices praise God in Revelation 11. God rules in the kingdoms of men. These kingdoms are left to other people. But there comes a point when that great image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, representing all the great kingdoms of history, is smote at the feet with a rock and becomes chaff that's driven away by the wind. And that rock becomes a mighty mountain that rules in the earth. This is Messiah. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God. This is not new information in Revelation 11. This has all been written aforetime. Inward spiritual becomes outward visible. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 verse, and verse 27. Who's next? I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days. 
and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And what was the other one? Uh, verse 27. And the kingdom of and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. The inward spiritual in Messiah becomes the outward visible. Not a kingdom left to other people whereby God governs and directs behind the scene, but a kingdom given to Christ whereby His saints, not other people, not wicked kings and governments, but whereby His saints rule and reign with Him, even judging angels. That's why we should go to even the least esteemed in our churches to seek counsel and wisdom instead of going to earthly courts. Shame on Christians who take other Christians to court. Shame on them. Shouldn't happen. I'm not talking about insurance companies and stuff like that. But we're appointed to judge angels and to rule and reign in this outward visible kingdom. But this passage here, it says, Daniel saw in the night visions one like the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, a name given to God by, in the book of Daniel. And the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man a kingdom, the Son coming with the clouds of heaven. This coming with the clouds of heaven coincides with the kingdom given to Him. And at this point in the book of Revelation, we're so close to chapter 19 in chronology that it's basically the same. What happens from here on out happens very quickly. We're well into the second half of the tribulation. But when the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven, the kingdom is given. The inward spiritual becomes outward visible. The kingdoms of our Lord become the kingdoms of our, or the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Now very interestingly, there is no Jew who reads the Old Testament, no rabbi that reads Daniel 7 verse 13 and thinks it's talking about something other than Messiah. The Jews know this is a reference to Messiah. What verse did Jesus quote at His trial when the high priest demanded that He answer a question? Are you the Messiah? Did Jesus give Him a straight answer? He did, but not what they wanted. He didn't say yes. He didn't feel the need to say it. It was obvious. He said, you say so, but I'll tell you this, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. If Jesus wanted to calm the crowd, if Jesus wanted to diffuse the situation, that was the absolute worst verse in the entire Old Testament he could have quoted. That sent them into a rage. Because in quoting that verse, he was declaring himself to be the Messiah of Israel and the ruler of this world. And they hated him. The high priest said, what evidence do we need? We've got it right here. Crucify Him. He was Messiah. Zechariah 14, 19. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, I'm not exactly sure <laughs> uh, why... Um, 
I, I wrote that. I think there in that whole last half of Zechariah, from verse 16 through 21, it describes the kingdom. And there's actually a period where Christ is sitting on His throne and those nations that don't come up to worship will be punished. If you go back and read verse 16, uh, that those nations that are left after the destructions of, of Revelation will be required to come up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And those that don't do it will be judged with plague. And so there is a point when Christ actually sits on the throne and all the nations are subject and come up to pay uh, tribute to Him. And so we see that scene. It's really the last half of that whole chapter. But God takes and rules the kingdoms of men at a point in time from our perspective. And this action of taking is tied to none other than Yeshua HaMashiach. His Christ. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. These things are very clear in the Bible. In fact, it's really associated, even with what we talk about near Christmas, it's associated with the announcement that was made by the angel Gabriel to Mary. I know we're looking at a lot of scriptures, uh, but let's go to a few of these that refer to Christ. Um, Ronnie, Psalm 110, verse 1. Jim, if you'll look up Luke 132. And then Matthew, I, I want to look for a moment at Acts 756. It's a very interesting passage. This taking of the kingdom is tied to Christ. Period. There is no kingdom without Christ. The Muslims speak of a kingdom of God, but they deny the Christ. They deny the Son. The kingdom they seek doesn't exist. It will fall and crumble like the chaff of that statue. Because the kingdom is tied to Christ, the Son of God. Psalm 110.1 the, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy Jake, Jake, David's not speaking of himself. The Lord, cap, all capitals, Jehovah, said unto who? My Lord, Adonai. Is David talking about himself? He's talking about something God says to his Lord, his Master. Sit at my right hand until when? Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So Christ is to sit at the right hand of God at his Father's throne until... He makes his enemies his footstool. When the enemies are made the footstool, what's that? The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And David is speaking about Jesus. In fact, that's preached about in Acts. The apostles refer to that. But this is tied to Christ. Luke 132. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And in the next verse it says, He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Okay, the angel announces this to Mary, the angel Gabriel. Was any of this fulfilled in the life of Christ outside the inward hearts of his people? Was any of this fulfilled at his first coming? Did we see any of this happen? 
Was he called the Son of the Highest by the people of Israel? Was he recognized as the Lord God? Did he sit on the throne of David? Did he reign forever and ever? Yeah, he sits on the throne of our hearts. Yes, he reigns in our hearts, of course. Amen. The spiritual side. The initial fulfillment, but what about that ultimate fulfillment? In Psalm 110, he's sitting on the throne of God. Here, it's said that he will sit on the throne of David. Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and the goats. He will sit on his own throne. Right now, he's at the right hand of God. When Israel repents and calls for him, he comes and overthrows these kingdoms and sits on the throne of his father, David. All of this is tied to Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 7, verse 56. This is an interesting passage, and we often don't consider what's actually happening or what Stephen actually sees happening here. Acts chapter 7, verse 56. Uh, Stephen saw Jesus standing. Most people would say he was standing to welcome his martyr home. Eh, it could be part of it. I don't think that's what's happening. Stephen is preaching the gospel very clearly to the Jews. The Jews gathered there to hear a crowd on the streets. And he is tracing the promise of Messiah down through the history. The nation is given an opportunity. Christ has died, He's been buried, and He's risen from the dead. All of that was accomplished. And now the nation of Israel is being given a formal opportunity to what? Recognize their offense and, and repent. Stephen calls them to repentance. So the nation is given an opportunity. And as this opportunity is given, Stephen sees what? Jesus standing. If you've been sitting... And then you stand, why would you stand? Because you're getting ready to what? If I'm sitting in a chair, I've been sitting here for, for a while, and then I get up. Why do I get up most of the time? I'm getting ready to go somewhere and do something. Okay? Let's go back to what this prophecy is in Hosea. I'm going to read it again. Hosea 5.15 I will go and return to my place. Okay, Christ came from heaven. At the right hand of God, He goes back. And the psalmist says, sit there until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So he has no reason to get up until his enemies are made his footstool and he comes to reign. I will go and return to my place until when? Until they acknowledge their offense. So the process or the act of making the enemies his footstool coincides with Israel acknowledging their offense. What is their offense? Exactly what Stephen accuses them of. Rejecting Christ. And until they acknowledge their fence and seek my face in their affliction, will they seek me early? So the nation is given an opportunity here through the preaching of Stephen. And Christ stands as the response, as, as, the, as the opportunity. The opportunity is given, and as Stephen preaches, we're getting ready to see the response of the people. So here we're at a crucial place in time. Jesus stands. He is ready to come back at that moment if the nation recognizes their offense. Stephen gives them an opportunity. He preaches hard. And if Israel in that moment had repented and called upon Christ, he would have returned and set up his kingdom at that moment. He was ready. He stood up. But what happened? What happened? What did they do? What was their response? 
Stephen saw him standing. They would know what that meant. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Israel was given an opportunity to do what was said there in Hosea and Jesus would have come back at that moment. That's why he was standing. But they rejected him. Formal opportunity. Christ had to die. He had to be buried. He had to rise again according to the Scripture. So Israel had to reject Him. And they did. But here they're given an opportunity, just a few years after the resurrection, to repent. And Christ would come and do what the disciples asked Him at the ascension. Are you going to set up the kingdom of Israel at this time? Jesus didn't say, no, that's all spiritual. Like the, like the covenant theologian would have us believe. He didn't say that. He said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. After that, an opportunity was given. And had they responded, Christ would have come back. That's why he stood up. He was ready to come back. But they didn't. So he sat back down. And there he sits until Israel calls for him. Now, that doesn't mean he can't come for his church. That's different. Coming in the air to be with the Lord. A secret coming so that it can be said that he could come at any moment. But as far as setting up a physical kingdom on this earth, it awaits the repentance of Israel. That repentance will happen. Paul says in a single day all Israel will be saved. All living at that time who acknowledge their offense and call upon Christ will be saved. Doesn't mean if you have Jewish blood ethnically you're a Christian. The covenant theologian accuses dispensationalists like us of believing that. We've never taught that. We've never believed that. There's a point in time in which all Israel, not the church, shall be saved because it's a point in time when the nation does what's prophesied there in Hosea 5. All of this is tied to Jesus Christ and His actual taking of the kingdom, taking up the authority He already has. He won it when He rose from the dead. Or He had it in eternity by virtue of being the Son of God. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. I often preach this on the streets when I'm preaching a message. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus, humanly speaking, was the son of Joseph, Jesus ben Joseph, or Jesus of Nazareth. Christ is not his last name. His Christ. Christ is his office. It's his title. That word Christos in the Greek means the anointed one of God. Christ in Greek is Mashiach or Messiah in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's the same word. It means anointed one. Christ is the anointed one of God. It's His office. And that's how we should preach Him. One that has an office. An office that dictates that He will rule the kingdoms of this world. We talk about meek and lowly Jesus, humble and mild, but this Jesus has an office. Not an elected office, elected by wicked men, but an appointed office, appointed by a holy God. No, a democratic election is not the best way for righteousness to rule in this earth. It's the best we can come up with when you have wicked men with wicked hearts. But even our founding fathers knew when the morality departed, these things would, would just become tyranny. It's better to have a leader that's appointed by a righteous judge. And that's what we have in Christ. An office. Psalm 2 is the great messianic, official messianic psalm that talks about the anointed one, Christ. 
Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the nations imagine vain things? They have assembled themselves against the Lord and against His anointed, against His Christ. But they'll fail. The Bible says God laughs at that. He laughs at that. His Son will reign. Period. And He laughs at the idea of man stopping that. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. The preaching at Pentecost. There's, uh, this is all referenced here. And Peter preached this in this dispensation. We ought to preach it too. Acts chapter 2. Listen to what he said in verses 32 through 36. This Jesus has God raised up where are we, whereof we are eyewitnesses. We're not eyewitnesses, but we're heart witnesses because He's changed our lives. We've witnessed the power of Christ in our hearts and in our changed lives. Therefore, we can declare it. But these were eyewitnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He hath shed forth this which you now see and hear, which is the tongues of fire, and people hearing the Word of God in their language at Pentecost. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. Psalm 110, we just read it. Until I make thy foes thy footstool. The kingdom would come to Israel at a point in time. Therefore, because it will come, and he's sitting on the right hand of God in fulfillment of Psalm 110, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Because Jesus died, was buried and resurrected and sits at the right hand of God and this was seen by eyewitnesses, you can know assuredly that Jesus has been made Lord in Christ. And because He's been made Lord in Christ, He will be Lord in Christ over all kingdoms. And He will have a literal, physical, visible kingdom with a literal, physical, visible throne. That kingdom will last for a thousand years. And then God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And that kingdom will transcend the old creation and the new creation and continue on indefinitely. So much so that even there's a point when the Son of God lays down His crown that God may be all in all. These things are most assuredly true. This same Jesus who we preach on a cross and resurrected, we need to preach that He most assuredly is both Lord and Christ. Jesus will not be your Savior unless He's your Lord. Unless He's your Christ. Jesus cannot help you unless He's Lord and Christ. So either He's Lord and Christ or He's not. If we preach Him something other than what Peter preaches here, we are not preaching Him as He is in truth. Both Lord and Christ. We should preach this. Heaven declares that Christ shall reign forever and ever. This was declared by the angel Gabriel to Mary. This was declared by, to Daniel the prophet and interpreted to him. This is declared here in heaven in this worship scene. In chapter 11. He shall reign forever and ever. Friends, there's never, ever, ever, ever been an earthly king anywhere in history that has done this. 
All kings have ruled and reigned for a time, and then they passed away. And the kingdom went into the hands of their son, or it went into the hands of their usurper. We can read the history of Israel and Judah and know that all things done by one king sometimes were flushed down the toilet by the next guy. All things done by Hezekiah to bring the nation back to righteousness were flushed away by his son. The things that Josiah intended to instill in the people to fear God were flushed away by his son. Temporary kingdoms. And Josiah saw the writing on the wall. That's why I believe he was instrumental in doing something regarding the Ark of the Covenant. We'll talk about that later. But there's never ever been a king that reigned forever and ever. Certainly, Christ reigns in the hearts of His people now. But there's coming a day according to the angel when He will sit on the throne of His father David and from that point He will rule and reign forever and ever. That includes a thousand years on this earth whereby the curse is removed and we dwell on this earth. That includes reigning through an attempted final rebellion of Satan that doesn't even come to a a fight because fire rains down from heaven and destroys the camp of the wicked. And it includes transcending all things into a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever and ever and ever. This is language that's never been spoken of any king. It can't be written of any king, but it is written of the Lord and of His Christ. Make no mistake, these things are as good as done. Such is the first stanza of this worship service. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That's cause for rejoicing. Even in these dark days. Let's take comfort by this verse alone. The hallelujah chorus. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. It's true. It's as good as done. Now in our hearts, but soon coming. In the physical, in the visible, visible, in the physical sense. Verses 16 through 18, we have the second stanza. We've had heavenly voices declaring an eternal truth that's as good as done, yet future from our perspective, yet as good as done. Then we have a second set of voices. The second stanza would be verses 16 through 18. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God saying, We give Thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which are and was and is to come, because Thou hast taken to Thee Thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and Thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that Thou shouldest give reward unto Thy servants the prophets and to the saints and them that fear Thy name, small and great, and should destroy them that destroys the earth." This is the second stanza of this great worship service. And who is it that speaks? Who are the worshipers? It's the 24 elders that we're introduced to in Revelation 4 and 5. We talked back then that these are obvious representatives of redeemed men. In the Old Testament, in 1 Chronicles, there were 24 orders of priests that represented the whole priesthood before the Lord. These 24 elders represent the entire priesthood of the saints before the Lord. Who is the priesthood, the royal generation, the church? These are representatives of redeemed men. Who are the redeemed men they represent? Let's look for just a moment at Revelation 5, 9, and 10. 
I got started a little late this morning, so just give me a few minutes here. We see that when Christ takes the scroll, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fall down before the Lamb. They all had harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals, because thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, not them to God, like some modern versions read, out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. What entity comes from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation? The church. Us. You have redeemed us out of all these places. Now that's being spoken by people in heaven about themselves. So the re- who do these elders represent? They represent the church. And the church is present right there in heaven. And thou hast made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So these elders represent and speak for the church. Representatives of redeemed men who join that chorus. Who are they? Us that are redeemed out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Us that are made kings and priests. And we know that this is the church. So what we have here in Revelation 11, we've had voices from heaven, those heavenly creatures and the host of heaven praising God and making declaration. And now this second stanza is the church or the representatives of the church, the saints praising God. Again, in heaven. Why? Because they've been raptured out. In heaven. The worshipers are the elders. They represent the church. What are their voices? What do they say? That's verses 17 and 18. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty. They thank God. Should we do this? Do we do this? What does Revelation, I mean, what does 1 Thessalonians tell us in chapter 5 concerning the will of God? We're always seeking God's will, never taking the time to realize it's written down for us. Some things concerning God's will we don't have to seek because it's right here. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So we know that's the will of God, to give thanks in everything. And what do these representatives of the redeemed first do? They give thanks. They don't complain. They don't murmur. They give thanks. And what do we give thanks for? Remember I told you there's a pattern here. And when a pattern from heaven is given like it was to Moses, it's given to be followed. What do we have here? What do they give thanks for? If you'll read verses 17 and 18, we see that they give thanks first for who God is. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which are and wast and art to come. Then they give thanks to God for what He has done, because thou hast taken, past tense to thee, thy great power, and hast reigned. And then they give thanks for what God will do. Verse 18, what's going to happen. So we have a pattern here. Praising and thanking God for who He is, what He has done, and what He will do. 
speaking of the things that He will do with as much faith and gratitude as we speak of the things concerning who He is and what He has done. That's a pattern for us. I want to get into it and look a little more specific. I'm not going to finish this by any means. And then we've got to look at the third stanza which says some things about the temple and the Ark of the Covenant. And I feel, I feel um, uh, constrained to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. I want to talk about the history there's a lot of speculation and stuff that goes on about it today. But there's a reason why the heavens are open. And there's a reason why the, those suffering are given a glimpse of the ark on the earth to remind them of the strength of the Lord. There's a, there's a reason there. And I want to talk about the actual ark versus what John sees, what Hebrews talks about, about patterns, and a little bit of the history of the ark. So I'm not going to get into that today. But I want, what I want you to leave you with is that we have a model here. When we praise God, when we go to Him in prayer, let's do it by thanking Him for who He is. Let's thank Him for what He's done and what He's going to do. Let's praise Him. And then let's make our request be made known unto Him. You know, James, I like what Pastor James used to say about prayer. You know, the model of prayer he teaches to his people. To begin by praising God. And then to go to God with the needs of others. And finally, take to God your needs. And James often talks about how when he realized that in his life, that's when God provided things that they needed. And it's always convicting for me to hear that. But let us pray to God and worship Him as these elders in heaven. And let's be those this week or, and, and so forth and so on that praise Him for who He is, what He's done, and what He will do. There's peace in that. And when we're troubled... And frustrated, if we'll pray and worship like that, we'll find peace to then bring before God the things we want Him to hear. These voices praise God for who He is. In verse, the first part of verse 17, We give Thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and which was and which is to come. Where have we heard that phrase? What great hymn have we heard that? Lord God Almighty, who was and art and evermore shall be. Anybody know? There's a great hymn. It's in the very beginning of the Baptist hymnal that's actually taken from the throne room scene of Revelation 4 and 5 and the scene here in Revelation 11. It's that hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Verse 2 in particular uh, um, talks about... Uh, um, who were and art and evermore shall be. And it talks about all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden uh, crowns around the glassy sea. That's all there in Revelation 4 and 5. And then who were and art and is to come is also found here in Revelation 11. So the writer of that hymn got that hymn from these worship services in heaven. And like the writer of that hymn, who wrote it down for us, let us be those that think and reflect upon who God is and thank Him for specifics concerning His character as we open up our prayers. That hymn does so. We can praise God because He is, He was, and He is to come. He's eternal. They praise God for His eternality. Let us praise Him for that. 
Not like the religions of this world whose gods change and whose gods are fickle and whose prophecies come and go and aren't fulfilled. We, t- we serve an eternal God who will make all things right. And the representatives of the church will be here uttering these praises at some point in the future. Why wait till then? Let's be about it now. Let's follow the pattern, the order of service that will be given to us at some point in the future and let's follow it now in our personal lives. Let's be those that praise God. Let's open our prayers by praising God for who He is. Let's praise Him for who He is as we have conversations and run into people in our everyday lives. This is a pattern we can follow. Well, uh, obviously, uh, this is not going to be finished. Maybe uh, the last Sunday of the year we can finish up. I want to talk a little bit about what God has done, what He's going to do. And uh, there's a very important phrase in verse 18 I want you to think about. What, what is one of the things God is going to do? He's going to judge the dead. He's going to reward the saints and the prophets. But He's going to destroy those that destroy the earth. God's an environmentalist. Not a pagan environmentalist. Not a liberal. God's a divine environmentalist who created this world. He preserves this world and He cares for it. And He will destroy those that destroy it. So think about that. There's an element to think about. There are those that rape, pillage, and destroy this earth. In many ways. And the church has missed the boat on proper stewardship of God's creation. It's been picked up by pagans who worship the creature more than the Creator. We miss the boat. But God's earth includes the human race. It includes the family. That's all part of His created order. And at the top of that created order, man was set to have dominion and to care for God's creation. We destroy the earth when we rape and pillage God's resources. We destroy the earth when we destroy the family. And we destroy the earth when we murder the unborn in the mother's womb. God will destroy those of us who have destroyed His earth. And homosexual marriage, abortion, and all these things are just as wicked in the sight of God, if not more so than the rape and pillage of the planet itself. Because it's all one. And we were given stewardship. And those that have taken that stewardship and trashed it, will be destroyed. So there's something to think about there. Any questions? I, want to, I am excited to talk a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant as well. Some interesting history there. Alright, let's pray. And uh, we'll just finish later. So this outline will continue on through the end here before we get into chapter 12.